Who is Jesus? It's a question that yields a lot of different answers. Some say Jesus was a teacher or a prophet. He performed miracles or he gave profound wisdom. But they would say there's nothing supernatural, inherently supernatural about him. That view is a common view and it's very prevalent and around the world. It would be found in Islam or Christian cults like Unitarianism or Christian science. Others would say, yeah, Jesus, he was a supernatural being, but not fully God. And that view would be found with Jehovah's Witnesses who say that, yes, Jesus was a high created being, the highest of all the created beings, but he was a created being nonetheless. According to biblical Christianity, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the Messiah, meaning he is the long-awaited Savior predicted in the Old Testament hundreds of years in advance. And so for 2,000 years, the church has held this view that Jesus is the Messiah. And the church will continue to hold this view until the end of time. Now the question, who is Jesus, it's not just kind of a secondary religious debate. There's perhaps no more important question than this one. I think it's the, really the question of questions. Because the answer to this question is the determining factor whether you and I are forgiven of sin and receive the promise of heaven. Jesus made it explicitly clear that the response to that question determines our eternal destiny. In John 8, 24, Jesus was having a conversation with some religious leaders who opposed him. And he said these words to them, quote, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, we need to believe correctly about Jesus. It's not enough just to be sincere because we can be sincerely wrong about Jesus. We need to believe that he is who he claimed to be. And church, you're not just believing a set of facts about him. You're believing in him, right? You're believing in the person. You're trusting who he is. If I asked you the question, who is Jesus? What would you say this morning? What would you say? Today we're going to look at what I would say is the classic passage that clarifies the identity of Jesus and why it matters. Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And then he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? The disciples, as we're going to see, believe correctly. And this is the pivotal moment in their experience with him when they understand who Jesus really is. So let me invite you to turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, found on page 822. Now I need to add that this passage here today is kind of a stepping stone to a new series I'm going to start on January 23rd. 
uh, we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of 1 Peter because the Apostle Peter really figures prominently in this passage. So it's, I'm using it kind of as a springboard to leap into 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is a really magnificent book. We're going to be really blessed these next few months going through 1 Peter. Now, as you're turning to the passage in Matthew, the context is, is that Jesus just rebuked the disciples for their continued lack of faith and understanding in who he is and his true identity. And Jesus warns them not to fall prey to the influence of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these religious leaders who by and large opposed and rejected Jesus. So at this point, though, we're wondering if the disciples are ever themselves going to understand Jesus's ultimate identity because they have been with Jesus for over two years now. Okay, and we're wondering, are they ever going to get it? So the first part of the passage is the people and the identity of Jesus, the people and the identity of Jesus. Let's read verse 13 together. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It was uh, very much Gentile country, a lot of pagan worship going on up there. And so Jesus more than likely took him up to Caesarea Philippi to get a break from the crowds and also to do a little bit of private teaching with his disciples. So on the way, Jesus asked the disciples that question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he used that title, Son of Man, about himself. In case you don't know why he does that, well, it comes from the book of Daniel, where Daniel has a vision and in Daniel 7, and it says that someone appears to him like a son of man before the throne of God, and he's given all authority to have an eternal kingdom. And so that's where Jesus derives that title. So it was a messianic title, but... It was not a common messianic title among the Jews, right? And that's why Jesus uses this. Jesus doesn't go around during his ministry and identify himself explicitly as the Messiah. You say, why is that? Because at the time, there was a lot of misguided expectations about the Messiah. The Jews had been oppressed for centuries and centuries by these foreign powers. And so they were longing for a political, military Messiah to come in and kick out the Romans. And so Jesus knew that that was not his mission, okay? He knew that he was going to die for the sins of the world. And so he didn't call himself the Messiah explicitly because he didn't want to uh, yield to himself all kind of unnecessary controversy and cut short his ministry before his course was done, okay? But yet he still calls himself the Son of Man, kind of covertly saying he's the Messiah, but not explicitly, okay? So all that to say, Jesus asked his disciples about the views of the people. And this was a really natural question. 
because Jesus had had this incredible ministry so far in Galilee, right? I mean, he's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's even raising the dead. He's teaching with this unprecedented power and authority. The, the crowds are just flocking to him. So it's very natural at this point for Jesus to kind of take an inventory and ask the disciples, okay, who are the crowds saying that I am? You guys hang out with the crowds, right? He's teaching. He's performing miracles. He's the center of attention. The disciples are kind of probably out there in the crowds. They're hearing everything. And so Jesus wants to know, what do the people say that I am? Verse 14, let's read what they say. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there, there's a variety of responses, aren't there, right, about Jesus. And I think these were kind of the standard guesses because they show up earlier in Mark 6, these same basic guesses about Jesus' identity. Let's just take a moment and look at these guesses really quickly and see why they perhaps were thinking these things. So some thought Jesus was John the Baptist, all right? Why this guess? Well, they were pretty closely connected. J John prepared the way for Jesus, right, before when he was preparing. Uh, you know, for Jesus's ministry to begin. He baptized Jesus out there in the Jordan River, and they had a lot of points of similarity. They were about the same age. They had a similar message, preaching repentance, preaching that the kingdom of God was coming. So there were some real similarities. And then also, somehow this view developed that Jesus was really John risen from the dead. Now, this isn't some type of reincarnation thing where Jesus' spirit went into John or something like that, but somehow the view developed that, uh, that when John died that it was and, and people were seeing Jesus, that it was really just John, and that's how he was doing these miraculous things and so forth, that, that Jesus was really just John, okay? They're one and the same person. So this view was out there. Herod Antipas held this view right? He put John to death and believed that Jesus was really John coming back from the dead. Herod wasn't that bright of a cookie, I don't think, though. <laughs> because if he'd really thought much about it, he would have seen this wasn't going anywhere. Because Jesus and John were together at the same time, right? John baptized Jesus afterward. They ministered for a while together. They say, could it be the same person? But that view was out there. A better view, more likely view, was that he was Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. That was a better guess. Because for one thing, Elijah raised someone from the dead. Only one other person in the Old Testament did that. That was his protege, Elisha. But more importantly, the last prophetic book in the Old Testament, Malachi, predicted that before the return of the Lord, Elijah would come. And so there was a great expectation amongst the Jews that, that, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. So some apparently were thinking Jesus was the forerunner to the Messiah, but that he was not the Messiah. One writer says, since Elijah was expected to return in the last days, and since Jesus was considered a prophet and preached that the kingdom of God had arrived, his being considered Elijah was quite natural. Another guess that we saw there was that he was a Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah has his own book in the Old Testament. It's a big book, isn't it? Very large book of all of his prophecies and so forth. 
You say, well, why were they connecting him with Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was sometimes called the weeping prophet, and Jesus was emotional sometimes in his ministry. He also, like Jeremiah, uh, predicted the downfall of the temple and had strong words, didn't he, about the religious leadership of his day. And so some thought he was Jeremiah. As we also saw there, some thought he was one of the prophets. Again, talking about these Old Testament prophets. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, what is the common denominator about all these different guesses? Common denominator is that they were all seeing him as what? A prophet. They saw Jesus as some type of a prophet. Now, on one hand, that's not a dismissive regard, right? The prophets were held in really high regard. People, again, they were in awe of Jesus' miracles and his teachings and so forth. And everybody recognized, or at least it was commonly recognized, that the prophetic voice had died out for a really long time. And so for Jesus to be regarded as a prophet was high esteem, right? And Jesus himself called himself a prophet, so Jesus was a prophet. The crowds were right about that, weren't they? But they were also missing something very important. And on the other hand, we're going to see here that Jesus was much more than a prophet. And so far, the crowds didn't understand Jesus' true and ultimate identity. Everybody following so far? That's going to lead us to the second part of our passage. The disciples and the identity of Jesus. The disciples and the identity of Jesus. Jesus now changes focus from talking about the crowds to the disciples. He wants to know if they understood his ultimate identity. So in verse 15, we read, He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the original language there, that you that you see is plural. So he's saying, you all, right? Y'all. He's saying, everybody here, you disciples. It's also emphatic. It means that he is really wanting to know, who do you say that I am? I'm not worried about the crowds. In other words, he's pointing his finger at them. He's wanting to know what they think. He's putting his finger in their chest, if you will, and wanting to know, what do you think about me? I've been with you for two years. Do you understand who I really am? Verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that word Christ is the equivalent Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, they're interchangeable, okay? So Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, and since Peter is often the spokesperson of the disciples, I think it's fair to assume that he was speaking on behalf of all of the disciples. The disciples finally, finally understood that Jesus is the Messiah and what that entailed. And I say that what that entailed. We need to understand what that meant. Because again, there was a lot of misguided expectations about the Messiah. But they had finally, it had finally clicked for them that what was spoken about in the Old Testament, that is what we need to be looking for. And that is who Jesus actually is. 
Amen? So there's four expectations of the Messiah. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. First, the Messiah would come from the line of David. God made a covenant with David to have his descendants reign forever. And so it was assumed that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Even during his day, Jesus' day, the son of David was a common messianic title, right? So the Messiah would come from the line of David. Second, the Messiah will rule over the nations. He's going to destroy the enemies of God, and he's going to rule over not just Israel, but all of the nations of the world. Third, he's going to rule with righteousness and wisdom. Doesn't take long to start going through the Old Testament kings to realize that all of them failed, right? Not the Messiah. And then fourth, the Messiah will be God. And this is what is so amazing because we know from the Old Testament that Israel and the Jews were strict monotheists. But here we get hints of Trinitarian monotheism. One God, three persons. Isaiah 9, 6 predicted. Again, this is like 700 years before Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let me ask you, do you see that the Messiah was going to be much more than a prophet based on what we just said here? Do you see how the Old Testament laid this out? It also talks about how the Messiah is going to suffer and die. That will come up later. But it was talking about this, and they got this. They finally got it. But did it, it did not come easy for these disciples because they were knee-deep in all the expectations of their peers. But they finally got it. Hallelujah. You say, well, what happened? What transpired? Quite simply, God the Father revealed it to them. Go down to verse 17. It reads, and Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? Jesus calls him Simon Bar-Jonah which literally meant Simon, son of Jonah. He was, his father was named Jonah, right? So he's saying Jesus is probably calling him this, I believe, to remind Peter of his own humanness, right? In other words, Peter, you didn't figure this out yourself. And your earthly father didn't reveal this to you. Someone else didn't teach you this. To know Jesus' ultimate identity, his true identity, requires what? Divine revelation. Yes, there's the human element of belief, but this is preceded and enabled by God's gracious initiative to open our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? How would you answer that question this morning? Sadly, the answer of the crowds is still the most popular one today. That Jesus is basically a great man, right? A great teacher, a great prophet, something along those lines, but nothing more. 
but that is not his ultimate identity, is it? And you know what? Jesus doesn't leave us this choice. He tries to make it clear that he is a great man, he is a great prophet, but he is, he is that much more. And you can't just leave it there that he's a great man. He's not given us that option because of what he has said and done. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis really explains why this is impossible. He writes these memorable words. He says, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So C.S. Lewis gives us here kind of what some people call a trilemma, not a dilemma, but three choices, right? He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And since there's not really a scrap of evidence that he was a liar or that he was a lunatic, it leaves us with that choice that he is Lord. So friend, if you've never done so, I would like to invite you this morning to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, to believe in what he actually demonstrated by his life, that he is Lord. And Jesus tells us how we are to respond to him. We're to turn and we're to trust. We're to turn from our sins means that we realize that our sins violate the will of God and merit punishment. The things that we have done in our lives and continue to do, whether it's lying, whether it's gossip, whether it's lust, greed, pride, idolatry, and all those things, that it matters to God, a righteous and holy God who will judge our sins. We need to turn from them. That's why he came, was to bring forgiveness. And then we need to trust him to trust that he is Lord. As we saw in our passage, he's more than a prophet. <laughs> he is the Messiah. He's God in human flesh. He is Lord. And he died on the cross to pay for your sins. But you must believe in him to receive that forgiveness. Romans 10.9 promises, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I would just add to that, that Jesus is what you're looking for. He is worth it. All the things that we chase in life, thinking that's the answer, Jesus is the answer. 
He is hope. He is purpose. He is peace. All of those things that we run around ragged looking for, he is our living hope as we just sang about. He will be that for you if you've never come to that place. Believe in him today and you will experience him as your living hope. And if you have believed that Jesus is your Lord, we rejoice, amen? We rejoice. You're a Christian. You've received the promise of eternal life. Praise God. The greatest thing that can happen has become a reality in your life. And so we rejoice about that. But let me give a little challenge, if I may. Jesus wants to make our faith public through baptism. Now, again, to be clear, becoming a Christian is not about being baptized. It's about believing in Christ. But once we believe in him, Jesus has commanded his people, his disciples, to declare their faith through baptism, to be unashamed of the gospel, to be unashamed of that relationship we have with him because he is our living hope and we want to tell the world about it through the means that he has told us through baptism. So if you have believed in Christ but have not been baptized, I just want to gently urge you this morning to follow through and to declare to the world that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And I want my friends, I want my neighbors, I want my coworkers, I want my family, I want the world to know that I am following this Jesus for the rest of my days. And as a church, we will be delighted to celebrate with you. We'll be glad to turn the faucet on in the back of the baptistry and celebrate that great day with you. God is good. And he shows us through Jesus Christ that he loves us, willing to die for you and I. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this just amazing passage, for this conversation that you had with these disciples where you posed to them the question of questions. Who do you say that I am? Lord, I pray that you would make that same revelation today, that someone here today would have their heart opened to understand who you are, that you are more than a prophet, that you are the Christ, that they want to know you personally, Lord, that today would be the day when they believe that you are the Messiah and to be followers of you for the rest of their days. Lord Jesus, we pray for uh, those who have trusted you but want to follow you in baptism. God, I pray that you would give them a gentle nudge today to say, you know what? It's been long enough. I'm going to follow Christ through baptism. I'm going to declare to the world that he is my Savior and I am unashamed of him. And I want others to hear about what he has done in my life to pass the baton, so to speak, to someone else who needs to hear about the living hope that Jesus offers. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your precious truths. Lord, we Give this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.